following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. It's a pretty familiar one for a lot of people. It's definitely a Sunday school favorite. If you've had a background in, in kids' church Sunday school, this story is told and told and told and told again. And those of us that have been in Sunday school, we've heard it, and you've probably colored in pictures of Daniel in the lion's den many times, maybe. Uh, you might have seen it on the old felt boards. Have you seen, remember the old felt boards? Have you seen Daniel in the lion's den, you know, acted out on the felt boards, or maybe just the big children's story, or you've seen it acted out, and... We tend to be very familiar uh, with the basic details of the story, but we need to recognize as we come to a passage like this that our familiarity with the story, even though it's a good thing, it can be a barrier, and because some of us have heard the story so many times, we think we've got it, we think we know it, and therefore we kind of switch off and we we can become numb to the meaning of the story, and it's our familiarity with the story that almost inoculates us against the meaning and the significance and the real impact of the story. So what I want to encourage you to do this morning as we look at this is no matter how many times you've heard this story before, read or taught or preached on or whatever, try to put that aside, try to encounter the story as if for the first time, as if you're hearing it for the first time and try to hear it with fresh ears and see it with fresh eyes and allow God to speak to you through the story with fresh power as we go through it, okay? Let's try at least. So let's look at a couple of the details of this story just to put it in some kind of historical background. Uh, The first person that we meet in Daniel 6 is King Darius. And there's a a bit of controversy over exactly who King Darius is, but the important thing is that he is the ruler of the Persian Empire at this time. And the Persian Empire has just conquered the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel, the key player in this story, he was one of the key government officials in the Babylonian Empire, in the Babylonian government. Now the Babylonians are gone and the Persians have swung into power. But interestingly, they keep Daniel in his position. They continue to give Daniel this leading role of being one of the key government officials, one of the key administrators over the the territory of Babylon, which is now under Persian control, which tells you a couple of things about Daniel. Uh, It tells you that he was a pretty competent leader. He obviously knew what he was doing as a government official. And it tells you that they probably didn't see him as a threat. Uh, He wasn't Babylonian, he was Jewish, and so they didn't kill him along with other Babylonians they might have taken out, like Belshazzar, but they let Daniel live, and they continue to give him this position of prominence. So here's Daniel, he's one of three administrators over Babylon, with 120 other guys, these satraps, these government regional rulers, underneath him. So he's in a real position of influence and power, and that's what makes the others jealous. It's because Daniel's got such influence and power, but he's not even a Persian. He's a Jew, and that just annoys some of these native Persian rulers and some of Daniel's co-workers, and they start to devise this plan to get rid of him. And so they come to the king, and they say, King Darius, we suggest, we advise that you make a decree, that you make an edict, that for 30 days, no one is able to pray to any god except you. Now, probably what they were suggesting here, it's not that King Darius was being made into a god. It's not that they were saying, you are the one we're going to pray to. It's probably that King Darius was like a mediator between human beings and God. So it's like whatever, human, whatever, whatever god you want to pray to, you have to go through Darius. Whatever gods you want to communicate with, Darius is like the conduit. 
You've got to pray to him, and then somehow from him your prayers kind of get carried to God. So that's the, that's the role that King Darius is kind of playing here in the story. That's the role his advisors want him to have. And, of course, all this is to trap Daniel. So the king foolishly puts this in writing, and he seals it with his signet ring. And the thing with the Persians is that once there was a Persian law, once the king had made a law, and it was in writing, and it was sealed with his signet ring, it couldn't be repealed. That was just parts of the, part of the law of the Medes and the Persians. You couldn't repeal legislation once the king had put it in effect. And so Darius puts this law into effect. And then we see Daniel, this beautiful scene where the very next thing that Daniel does, as soon as he finds out that this law is in place, he goes up to his bedroom where the windows open towards Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of the one true God. And he gets down on his knees and he does what he has been doing all along. And he prays to the God of Israel, he prays to the, the living God three times a day faithfully. And that shows you where Daniel's real allegiance lies. That even though he is serving the king of Persia, and even though he had served the king of Babylon before him, his allegiance is to Yahweh. His allegiance is to the living God. And if there's going to be a confrontation between the laws of humanity and the laws of God, Daniel's going to go with the laws of God every time. And he will be faithful to God no matter what the consequence, no matter what the cost will be. And in this case, it could have been significant. So these Persian officials then come and find Daniel. And of course, they find him doing what they thought they'd find him doing. He's praying. And so they rush back to the king. And king, we've found Daniel. He's broken your law. He's praying to God. He's not praying to you. And of course, King Darius, his hands are bound so to speak. He can't do anything about this. He's put this law in place. It can't be repealed. So even though he tries to find a solution, eventually he is in a position where he has to hand Daniel over to the lion's den. He has to give the order and Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, which basically was just a form of execution for the Persians. I mean, the Persians had the lion's den. The Babylonians had the fiery furnace. These ancient empires, they came up with all sorts of creative ways to kill you, but they would find a way. And in, in this case, it was the lion's den. So Daniel is thrown in there thinking probably that he was going to his doom. He had no promise that he was going to be saved. He had no promise he was going to be rescued. He's thrown into this lion's den. And I think we can kind of, I think at this point we sort of sanitize the story a little bit because you see the pictures of Daniel there and he's, he's got these big cuddly lions lying on his lap, you know, and he's stroking their mane and they're purring like a kitten. And this is kind of the scene. But I think that video actually probably gets a bit closer to the truth. I imagine Daniel went into that pit terrified, this black pit. You know that there's lions in there. He had no guarantee he was getting out alive. And I imagine his heart was pumping out of his chest and adrenaline surging through his veins. And he probably thought he was about to meet a horrific death. But of course, you know how the story goes. God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions, and Daniel survived the night. And Darius comes down in the morning, and he calls out to Daniel, probably thinking Daniel was dead, but he calls out anyway, and Daniel responds and announces that he's alive. And the chapter ends with Darius then taking these other rulers who had conspired against Daniel and throwing them into the lion's den. This is a bit of a grotesque turn of events here, and their wives and their children. I mean, you didn't hear that in Sunday school, did you? You didn't hear that on the felt board. The, um, this part of the story is pretty disturbing stuff, but that's what Darius did, and um, we'll leave that sermon for another day, but that's kind of how it ends. And then Darius writes this letter to all the, all the kings of the earth declaring that Daniel's God is the true God, and he rescues and he saves, and he saved Daniel from the mouth of the lions, this, this great note of victory. Uh, at the end of the story. So 
The story, in its basic details, the story is, is fairly familiar to many of us. But I think what, what happened for a lot of us when we heard this story as children is that there, there tended to be like a, a particular moral lesson that came out of the story. And it tended to be taught a certain way. And the lesson that we got out of it was something like this, that if you trust in God like Daniel, God's going to protect you. It was something like that, wasn't it? And we heard that one, and we heard it many times, many different ways. If you have faith in God like Daniel did, God's going to look after you, and God's going to protect you, and God's going to deliver you, and God's going to make everything okay. And so we hold Daniel up as this Bible hero. He's this great Bible hero. He's a hero of faith. And if we just have faith like him, it's all going to be okay. And that sounded like a really good Sunday school lesson. I mean, that sounded really spiritual and a nice, tidy, moral lesson to draw from the story. But I think the problem is, for many of us, we heard that in Sunday school, and then we grew up. And we realized that that cute little moral lesson doesn't really work in real life. And that little platitude that if you just trust in God, everything's going to be okay, it just crashes into the harsh realities of real life. Because you've got to ask yourself, what does this story say to people that are really battling? What does that moral lesson say to people that are really battling? I mean, if you've got someone, if a parent has lost a child to cancer and they read that story, what are they supposed to get out of it? Did God not protect their child? What happened to if I just trust in God like Daniel, everything's going to be okay? What about the person who's struggling with crippling depression? What, what about if I just trust in God, everything's going to be okay? Is, are they not praying enough? Do they not have enough faith? Is God not hearing? It raises all these questions that in the end just layer that person up with more and more and more guilt. And so the problem is that if we just stick with that cute little moral lesson that we learned in Sunday school, at best, the story just is completely disconnected from everyday life, and it just remains a nice children's story, but it doesn't really work in real life. Or at worst, it's going to shipwreck your faith, because it's going to give you these expectations that when they're not met, if they're not met, will crush your faith. And I think the problem is with this story, with our interpretation of the story, is that there's a missing step. There's a really important missing step in the way we read and understand this story. And it's not, this is not something new and novel that I'm coming up with at all. In fact, this step, this, this missing step, is something that the earliest generations of Christians saw in this story. When they read it, they don't tend, tend to read it as we read it today. They saw something in it. And when that thing is in place, then it starts to make sense. Let me show you a piece of artwork, if we can stick that up on the screen, Rodney. A painting that is from... It's a bit hard to see, but this is a painting of Daniel in the lion's den. It's a simple picture, and it comes from a very early time, second or third centuries, and this is in the Roman catacombs. If you've been to Rome, you know there's all these tunnels underground, and it's basically like a graveyard. People would bury their dead. They would put people in, these, in tombs, and they, the tombs would go into the wall of the catacombs, and this is how people buried their dead. And in and around the tombs underground, there are these pictures, these paintings, of all sorts of scenes from the Bible, including Daniel in the lion's den. Um, some from the Old Testament, some from the New Testament. They're, they're fairly primitive in terms of artwork, but they are some of the earliest examples of Christian art in existence because they come from only a century or two after Jesus. So they're significant for that reason. Now, in and of itself, that's an interesting little painting. But in the context of the catacombs, it's actually quite significant. Because when you look at all the artwork in the catacombs, there's one picture you never see. 
And it's the picture of Jesus on the cross. In the first few centuries of the church, Christians never or almost never drew pictures of the cross. They never drew pictures of Jesus on the cross. I mean, there's pictures of Jesus in the catacombs, but it's Jesus before Pilate or it's Jesus the good shepherd. They didn't draw Jesus on the cross because when you think about it, for the first three centuries of the church, the Romans were still crucifying people. So there were still people hanging on crosses outside the city of Rome. So it, was, it would have been incredibly bad taste for Christians to start depicting artwork of a cross with a person hanging on it, even if it was Jesus. This was a horrific way to die. This was grotesque. This was inhumane. So you don't find the cross in early Christian artwork until about the 3rd or 4th century. But what they did is they had another strategy for depicting the death of Jesus and depicting the cross. And they would paint these other Bible stories and they would use them in some ways to point to Jesus. And they would pick these Old Testament stories that in some sense depicted Jesus and they would use those indirectly to point to and to describe the death of Jesus. And when you, when you see that, then you look at a painting like this and you can start to see what's going on. You notice Daniel has his arms outstretched in this painting. And again, in the context of all this artwork in the catacombs, a lot of the figures in the paintings have their arms outstretched. Now, why is that? Because when people looked at these paintings, people looked at this painting, they didn't just see Daniel, they saw Jesus. And indirectly, without actually depicting crucifixion, this is pointing us to Jesus. And this is a symbolic description of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's still a depiction of Daniel, but do you know what I mean? This has a double meaning. This is Daniel and the lions, then flanked by these lions. But at another level, this is Jesus on the cross. And so when the early Christians read the story of Daniel in the lion's den, they didn't make it a story that was just a moral lesson for our lives, and if you just trust in God like Daniel, everything's going to be okay. They didn't do what we tend to do with it. Instead, they saw this primarily as a story that points to Jesus. They saw it as a story that points to Jesus. And when you see that, when you get that, then you come back to the story, and suddenly the parallels are everywhere. Suddenly Jesus is all through the story but we never saw it. Let me just walk you through some of the parallels between Daniel's experience in this chapter and the passion of Jesus. You think about Daniel's story. Daniel's troubles begin with a conspiracy against him by his co-workers, and he's betrayed by people that he's, that he's working with and that he's close to. Jesus' passion starts with a conspiracy by people that he's close to or by the Jewish leaders, and he's betrayed by someone he's close to. He's betrayed by Judas. The night before Daniel's Death, he's praying alone in his room. The night before Jesus' death, he's praying alone in the garden. And then Daniel, in the Daniel story, he's brought before the authorities on the charges that he's undermining the authority of the king. Similarly, Jesus is brought before the authorities on the charge that he's undermining the authority of the king by claiming to be the king of the Jews. Jesus, in, in, the, in the story of Daniel rather, Darius the king is reluctant to hand Daniel over to death, but he's forced to do so by this law. In the Jesus story, Pilate is reluctant to hand Jesus over, but he's cajoled along by the crowd and he eventually sentences Jesus to execution. Daniel is put into the lion's den and then the den is closed with a stone and it's sealed. In Jesus' story, in the crucifixion, Jesus is killed and then his body is put in a tomb and it's closed with a stone and it's sealed. And then, of course, the crescendo of the story, Daniel is lifted out of the den and Jesus is raised bodily from the dead. The parallels again and again and again and again through the story. You can see these parallels between Daniel and Jesus. And you see that a major purpose for this story being in our Bible 
is to give us a picture of the Easter story, to give us a picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that accomplished. The Daniel story tells the Easter story. Jesus is the new Daniel, and he's the greater Daniel because there's one key difference between Daniel and Jesus, right? Jesus really did die. Jesus wasn't just spared from death like Daniel. Jesus suffered death. In fact, some people have seen that pit, that lion's den, as a symbol of the grave that Jesus descended down to. Some people even believe hell that Jesus descended down into when he died. Jesus descended into the pit of death for us. And then that makes his resurrection all the more miraculous because Jesus wasn't just saved from death. He was saved through death and out the other side. He was resurrected. He didn't just narrowly escape death, but he experienced it. And then he was raised from the dead. So the miracle that God did through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, is infinitely greater than the miracle that God did for Daniel. But the parallels are very strong. And this is, in the first instance, what we are meant to see, is that Daniel beautifully tells the Easter story and gives us a fresh and rich way of understanding what Jesus has done through his death and through his resurrection. That's the missing piece. So you have to see, if we just move straight from Daniel to our lives, we are going to come off track with the story. We are going to start interpreting it in some very skewed kind of ways. But when we move from Daniel to Jesus, and we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the story, then we can move from Jesus to us. Then we can get to our lives and we can ask, what does this story mean for us today? But we do that in view of Jesus. We do it in view of seeing the story fulfilled through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, we come back to this story now as Christians and we ask, how does this story intersect with my life? Where do I find myself in this story? What relevance does it have for me? But we ask that in view of Jesus. And so to answer that question and look at what this then means for our life, how the Daniel story relates to our life, let me go right over almost to the end of the Bible to another book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. And this is the only place in the New Testament where the story of Daniel in the lion's den is mentioned. It's mentioned once. It's referred to once at least in the New Testament. Hebrews 11 is this beautiful chapter. Often it's called the faith chapter because it's just the whole chapter is just this list of people of faith in the Old Testament, men and women of faith, people who demonstrated faith in God through their lives. And look at what it says in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. Now, it doesn't specifically say Daniel, but there's only one person in the Old Testament that experienced anything like that, so it's pretty clear who this is referring to. So Daniel's in here, not by name, but this is referring to Daniel, and that means that because of this experience Daniel went through, he makes it into the great hall of faith. He makes it into the great faith chapter in the New Testament, and he's held up as a model of faith, of trusting in God. So... Our Sunday school teachers were actually right when they told us that Daniel is a model of faith. Because that is here. That is in Scripture. Of course, Daniel was a model of faith. He was an incredible example of trusting in God and having faith in God. But we need to take the journey that we've just taken. 
We need to see that the story is fulfilled in Jesus because only then can we really grasp what faith actually looks like, the kind of faith that Daniel had and the kind of faith that we are called to have today. So let me just draw from this story, as we think about it now in view of Jesus, having walked this road now, let's think about what faith looks like in our lives, the kind of faith Daniel had in view of Jesus. The first thing is that faith is anchored in a God who saves. You look at the words of King Darius at the end of that chapter, Daniel 6, he says, verse 27, he rescues and he saves. A great statement. He's talking about God. He rescues and he saves. That's a great truth that God is a God who saves. But we can see that Darius is just talking about Daniel being saved from the lion's den. But we can see in the unfolding story of the Bible, that God didn't just save Daniel from the lion's den, but through Jesus, he has saved us. That Jesus was the one who tasted death for us and was raised again for us, and now he's the one through whom God saves us. So we can come to the story, and we can see that we're all in the shoes of Daniel. We're all in Daniel's place. That at one time, all of us were in the pit. All of us were in the pit of sin. All of us were in the pit of condemnation and shame and guilt. And we were in the clutches of the evil one. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the Bible, Satan is described like a lion. First Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We were all within his clutches at one time. But God has sent Jesus to shut the mouths of the lions and lift us out of the pit. This is a beautiful picture of our salvation. This is a picture of us being raised up to new life, that Jesus has lifted us out of the pit of sin, out of the pit of death, out of the pit of eternal judgment, and he has lifted us into freedom. He's lifted us into this place where we are forgiven by God, where we can be at peace with God. We can be friends of God. We can be children of God. We can be in God's kingdom, this place of blessing, this place of forgiveness. This is the story of salvation. This is the story of what God does for anyone who trusts in him, anyone who trusts their life to Jesus. He rescues us and he saves us. And that's what faith is. Faith needs to be anchored in the story of our salvation. If we just take the story as a guarantee, God's going to save you from whatever you're going through. God's going to rescue you. God's going to provide a quick fix for whatever your difficulties are right now. We are going to set ourselves up for disappointment. We should pray for God to intervene in our lives. And we should believe God can bring relief and God can bring respite and God is a healer. But ultimately, our faith is anchored in the story of salvation. Our faith is anchored in the cross that we know no matter what happens, we are held in the arms of God. Like that song we sung this morning, you never let go. That's the promise we have. That's real faith that God is not going to let go no matter what storms of life come along because of the cross, because we stand in grace and we stand in mercy. You will never fall beyond the reaches of God's grace. That's what this story assures you of. Not that if you just trust in God, everything's going to be fine all the time. But that as we have faith in God, we know that he is with us and he is for us and nothing can separate us from his love. So faith is anchored. It needs to be anchored in the God who saves, the God who rescues and who delivers us. But then faith has to be anchored in the future, anchored in the God who redeems and resurrects, anchored in our future hope. If you come back to Hebrews 11 and look right at the end of that chapter, as it describes all these people of faith, including Daniel, it says at the end, these were all commended for their faith, 
Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So that's saying that even though Daniel had this amazing faith, there was a promise he didn't receive. There was a promise he didn't see fulfilled. So this great promise in the Bible, and it's right here, that together with us would they be made perfect. So that points to a day that's still to come. That points to a day that's still in the future when God is going to raise us up from the pit of this life and he's going to set us in his eternal kingdom. That day when God is going to make all things new, that day when God is going to heal and mend this broken world, that's the day the Bible describes as a day of resurrection, a day when God is just going to raise us up and restore this good world that he's created and give us these new resurrection bodies. And what this is hinting at is that even back in the Daniel and the lion's den story, Daniel had a faith beyond the lion's den. He had a faith that stretched beyond the lion's den. It stretched beyond even the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It stretched beyond our day. It stretched all the way to the future resurrection. Now, he didn't know what that would look like, and he didn't know exactly what God had in store. He didn't have as much of the Bible as we do, but he knew that God had a plan that was bigger than his life. He knew that there was a glorious future coming. He knew there was resurrection. He knew there was going to be restoration. That's where his faith was anchored And that's where our faith needs to be anchored to. That's why it's so significant that that picture of Daniel is in the catacombs. Because whoever painted that, they put it on the tomb of a family member or a friend. And as they pushed that tomb into the wall of the catacombs, they looked at that picture of Daniel and they saw not only Daniel, but they saw our future resurrection. They saw that day when God's going to raise us all up like he raised Daniel. That day when God will lift us out of the despair of this life. And he will set us in his kingdom. That's ultimately what the story of Daniel points us toward. That's ultimately where our faith needs to be anchored if it's going to be true biblical faith. There's a guy named uh, Jim Stockdale who was a U.S. admiral in the Navy during the Vietnam War. And he was captured and he spent seven years uh, in a prison camp as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He was tortured ruthlessly multiple times uh, along with many other prisoners there, and the guards could just come in randomly, torture them, interrogate them. They had no sense of whether they would ever be getting out. They ended up spending seven years there, but without any real sense that it was ever going to end. And after he came home, uh, Jim Stockdale was interviewed about his experience. And he was asked how he survived. And he said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only would I get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect I would not trade. And then he was asked an interesting question. He was asked, who didn't survive? And he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. He said, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. And then he added this, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That, I think, is the kind of faith that Daniel had. Because when he went into that lion's den, he didn't know whether he was coming out alive. He had no guarantee. He would have heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he would have hoped like crazy that that happened to him. But he had no guarantee that he was coming out alive. 
And when you look at all these men and women of faith in Hebrews 11, some of them got out alive and some of them didn't. There are people in that chapter that were sawn in two, that were tortured and, and interrogated and flogged and martyred ultimately and killed. Some of them were delivered, some of them weren't. And if faith is just this thing that overcomes every difficult circumstance, then half the people in that chapter didn't have faith. But faith is bigger than that. Faith is anchored in our ultimate hope. Faith is anchored in the hope that we will prevail in the end, that no matter what we're going through in life, that we will prevail. It holds the end of the story in sight. Because we're going to go through times in life that are going to feel like a lion's den, right? Some of you are in this space now, and you're in the, a, a pit that feels like a lion's den. It may be the pit of mental illness. It may be the pit of a relationship that's just messed up and broken and fractured, and you just feel like the lions are circling around you. And faith in those situations is not this naive optimism that we're going to be out by Christmas. I mean, we must pray to God to intervene. But faith needs to be anchored to something beyond your current circumstances. Faith needs to be anchored to your salvation, and it needs to be anchored to that future hope that you will prevail in the end, that whether it gets better tomorrow or whether it gets worse, that in the end you will prevail because God is going to step in and he's going to raise us up on that final day. Faith takes the long view, not the short view. It takes that view that in the end, God is going to redeem and he is going to make everything okay. And we can trust him with that. And that kind of faith gives us then the discipline to look those lions in the eye in the present. It gives us the kind of faith that Stockdale's talking about to confront the reality. Because if you just live in this space where you believe God's just going to fix everything, mend everything, make everything new now, it's going to leave you in a state of denial about what's really going on. It's going to leave you avoiding the issues rather than facing the issues. But when we acknowledge, we don't know whether we're getting out by Christmas or not, but we know we're going to prevail in the end. We don't know whether we're getting out of the lion's den tomorrow or not, but we know we're going to prevail in the end. That kind of faith sustains us in the present because then we can look those lions in the eye that we're facing and we know they don't have the final word. We know that they, their power is limited. It might seem all-consuming now, but they are not the final reality. The resurrection the new heavens and the new earth, that's the final reality. In the end, God will prevail. In the end, he will renew and recreate all things. And that gives us the confidence to actually own our stuff in the present, to deal with our issues, to have confidence in the midst of the burdens that we are carrying, to really own it and take responsibility for it and deal with it and accept the reality of the present. Again, please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't cry out for God to to help us in the present. He can and he does, and God is a healer. But our faith needs to look beyond that. It needs to look towards that day of resurrection. And then we know, as we trust in God, we know that even in the present, he hasn't left us alone. But just as he didn't leave Daniel alone in that lion's den, he sent him an angel, and he sent us someone far greater than an angel. He sent us the risen Jesus to be with us in that lion's den, even in the present. So we're not alone. We're not suffering alone, but Christ is with us. And he will sustain us through the present en route to that final destination. So we need to take the story of Daniel and the lion's den and place it in the context of the whole sweeping story of salvation. And we need to appreciate the way that it was taught to us, maybe as children. But we need to place Jesus right at the center of the story and see 
that a big part of the reason this made it into the Bible is because it's a picture of what Christ has done for us. So we move from Daniel to Jesus, and we see this story as a beautiful picture of Jesus and the salvation that he's given to us. And we see it as a beautiful picture of our future hope. And then, once we're anchored by those two things, by our salvation in the past, if it is past, and then our future hope of resurrection, then we know what it's like to have faith in the present. Faith that God has saved us, and faith that God will redeem us in the end. And that gives us the faith of Daniel to face the lions that we face in our present day. So let's let this story lead us to Jesus. And in view of Jesus, let's allow God to stir a fresh faith in our hearts. The faith of Daniel through the story in view of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible story in our Bibles that many of us know so well. But we thank you, Jesus, for the way that ultimately appoints us to you. And we just thank you for these, these rock-solid foundations of our faith that this story communicates to us, your death and your resurrection and our salvation and our future hope in you. And we pray in view of that, that through these things, Lord, through your death on our behalf, that you'd give us faith to face whatever we're going through. Lord, I pray for anyone today who is facing the lion's den, who just feels like they are in the pit, who feels like they are under attack or battling and struggling. I pray, God, that you'd give them the faith of Daniel. But more than that, Lord, give them faith in Jesus. Give them faith in you, that they could look to you and know that they're held in your arms, that they could look to you and know that no matter how their situation turns out, they will prevail in the end. We thank you for that confidence. We thank you for that faith. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.